Okay, so this morning in two hours, anybody remember how much time we covered in, in terms of years? About, about 300 years. This afternoon, I, we're going to try to go from 400 to 1300 date. So, 900 years of human turmoil and struggle in three hours. Yeah. <laughs> so, sadly, we're not going to be able to go into as much depth in all these areas as we like. And this is going to be of a bit of a whirlwind overview. Okay, Josiah, can you go back to the map right before this? Okay, so this is Europe around near the end of the 300s. You see this gray area is the Roman Empire. You see up here, there's the Ostrogoths, the Slavs, the Huns were approaching there. The Saxons, the Franks. Now, what happened was these Visigoths had become a part of the Roman Empire. They revolted. They overthrew the one Roman emperor in the Battle of Adrianople, which was, I do believe, in the mid 370 sometime. Theodosius, remember the emperor, the first Christian emperor who made it as a Christian state? He took over very successful, he would tell them for a while. But these Visigoths kept pounding down, pounding on the, on the borders. Rome withdrew their troops from their northern outposts around Britain. When Rome withdrew the troops, uh, pirates came in and kidnapped Patrick, St. Patrick, around that time, and took St. Patrick back to Ireland, where he was a kid where he was tending pigs, and he, he prayed for a hundred times a day and a little bit less than that at night. Uh, just he, in the wild, but he grew to, he grew to love God immensely. Uh, he came back, he escaped, went back to his home, uh, which I think, I, I'm not entirely sure if his original home was just off northern France or if it was in England, but when he came back, he had a dream of the Irish crying for him to come save them. So he went back, he went back to Ireland, and he ha had a real openness to visions from God. I mean, spending that much time in prayer, he said there were so many times God would warn him of a calamity, God would communicate to him wisdom. He said he lived in constant fear of being kidnapped or destroyed, but God never let him down. He just had such a, a strong commitment to God, and it's amazing the legacy. Uh, Patrick wrote so much against slavery, and the Irish slave trade disappeared shortly after. He established a bunch of monasteries in Ireland. Uh, quick note, Christianity. Around this time, there was a debate before Nicaea, when do you celebrate Easter? Some people said it should always be on the 14th of Nisan. Other people said, no, it should always be the Sunday following that. So one group said it should always be the 14th, regardless of what day of the week it falls on. The other people said it should always be the, the Sunday. Now the people of, of St. Patrick's thought it was always the 14th. Now that'll enter the story later. 
But back to these Visigoths. In mid-300s, remember the empire was split between Arian and Nicene, and for a while there, everybody in power was Arian. During that time, a missionary by the name of Ulfius, which means little wolf, took the gospel, the Arian gospel that he knew, which he thought was the Orthodox gospel, to the Visigoths. He translated the Bible into their language. He helped them create a language. But he didn't include Samuel or kings because these people were so warlike. The Roman historians who write of them say they just, they loved to fight. They were drunkards. They did not have an advanced civilization. Cattle were more important than money to them. That tells you something about their IQ. <laughs> but anyway, these people adopted Jesus as their new warlord. This is something you'll see throughout medieval times, is a series of mass conversions and people mixing their pagan ideas with Christianity and getting kind of a, a syncretistic pagan blend. But these Visigoths, the gospel, the Arian gospel thread spread. When they marched down and sacked Rome, they didn't touch, they didn't destroy any of the churches. This, Rome finally fell in 410. And that sent shockwaves throughout the rest of the empire because Rome was known as the eternal city. They thought, how could Rome fall? It stood strong. It's been a beacon of hope. It's been a symbol of our people for 620 years. So it fell in 410. And along with that, let's see what else I can show you. Europe uh, completely changed around. So I can go to the next map. So this is by the 800s. You see the Franks took over this kingdom. The Visigoths came and took over Spain until the Muslims later came. Uh, the Vandals took over all of North Africa. North Africa was split because it was already splintered by the Donatists. You remember the schism there. And Arians then I'm getting ahead of myself, but Justinian came and brought another kind of Christianity. So by, but anyways, when the Muslims started expanding, North Africa was fractured by so many different versions of Christianity that the Muslims had no problem in taking it over. But so I just wanted to set the stage here. You'll see what's happening. In the, here's this Byzantine, or Byzantium, which is Byzantium was a city, Constantinople, I think I was mispronouncing it earlier. But constant, this is the now the Byzantine Empire. We're going to see the difference between East and West. But so that's a little bit of background of how Europe was shifting when the western part of Rome fell. It was filled with barbarian tribes. They were called barbarians because the Greeks didn't understand their language. And so they bar, bar, bar. There was a making fun of the way they spoke. In amongst this chaos in the Western Empire, the one thing, there was two things that kept it stable. One was the institution of the papacy. Now for all of us Protestants, we're going to bristle because a lot of us, the, the Pope may be a symbol of the Antichrist or the man of sin and that was a common thing that the reformers uh, proclaimed about him. 
Uh, but at first, I don't think it was such a demonic institution. I think you'll see that in the midst of all this instability, the church was trying, the church was the one stable institution. When all the governments were falling, the church remained stable. The church by this time had acquired large amounts of land because people on their deathbeds often donated their possessions to the church. So the, the, the office of the papacy, which will follow, and also monasticism in the West. In the West, the founder of monasticism is Benedict of Nursia, uh, which was the Ostrogoths were somewhere around there. He grew up in an Ostrogoth village around the 480s. And he at first lived in ascetic, and he had so many admirers for his wisdom. But a bunch of people said, well, we, why don't we do a community, of, a communal monastery, and you can be over us. But he was so strict that the men tried to poison him. They brought him a, 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 a spiked drink, and as he was blessing it, it suddenly slipped from his hands, and God spared his life there. And he fled for it, but he came away much wiser. Benedict's rule became, it's a lot of insight that allows for fallible human nature, and it became the standard. What it included was you had to live with the monastery for one year before you could join. So you, you had a good trial run to see what it was like. Once you decided to join, you had three vows, and this is going to be in the test. Vow of poverty, you didn't own anything. Anything you owned was given to the poor or the monastery. Celibacy, you were now married to this monastery. And third, obedience complete obedience and cheerful obedience to the one in charge. The one in charge was, had strict rules for being the father, treating them well. A basic day in a, in a Benedict monastery was you got up at two in the morning for vigils based on a verse in Psalms that says, at midnight I will praise you. And then from 3.45 to about six you had private devotions. Then at 7, I think it was Vespers, but starting there, that Vespers was the first meeting of the, the day of the divine office. Seven times a day, the monks gathered together for public prayer and a reciting of the Psalms. A Benedict monk totally immersed himself in the Bible, in the scriptures. There was so much wisdom in Benedict's system because he allowed for a good mix of physical work, and, and mental stimulation. And it was Benedict monasteries that started preserving the New Testament, a lot of the classics of antiquity. Something you need to realize is that civilization in this area, before the barbarians took over, was very advanced, very high in, uh, as far as cleanliness and knowledge and, and medical wealth. And it took a major step backwards as these bar barbarians took over. I'm not saying that they were less smart, but just they were, uh, they loved to fight, and that was so brutal. And from about the time of the invasion, all the way up until when the Vikings were done, this whole area here was, complete, was just decimated by invasion after invasion. These kingdoms fought against each other, then the Vikings came down from the north and just completely des destroyed this whole area. 
Finally, around the 9 and 10 hundreds, things started to settle down, and you, uh, things like banks and trade opened up again, and the Crusades affected all that. I'm just giving you kind of a nutshell. I'm going to go into it in more detail as we get to this time. So that, just wanted to give you a little nutshell of what was starting to happen in Europe. But I need to <coughs> jump back to the early 400s, back to the east again. We're going to dwell a little more on the east, <coughs> on the Byzantine Empire, and then we're going to leave them alone except for the few times where they intersect with the west, rest of European history. Nicaea solved which problem? What was the issue at Nicaea? The Trinity, that Jesus was fully God. But how that deity interacts with his humanity was the next question that the church fought over. By this time, it gets a lot more ugly because there is now a Christian empire. Debates were not so much centered on, let's quote the scriptures, let's quote the early apostles. It was, how can we get the em convince the emperor to be on our side? And so they became political struggles. There's basically two mistakes, according to the, what has become orthodox, ways that you can see Christ, the balance of his humanity and his deity. The first one is that he's fully God, and he's kind of like a divine being operating a robotic human body, where it's God in a body. A man by the name of Apollinarius taught this. He said, Jesus had a flesh and blood body, but his intellect, his rational soul, was replaced by a divine mind. So Jesus was just a divine mind with a human body, basically like God operating a human robot. But people objected, that's not really an incarnation. A God like that knows nothing about the weaknesses of our mind, knows nothing about the weaknesses of our struggle. That's not an incarnation. That's just kind of like docetism. And at 381, that view of Christ was condemned. The other mistake you can make is to emphasize his humanity so much <clears throat> that there's no room for there to be a merging between God. Another heresy was adoptionism, which was that God was fully, Jesus was fully human, and Jesus, the Logos, was fully God, and the spirit of the Logos kind of came upon Jesus the man at the baptism. This view of, of Jesus doesn't differ that much from the prophets, <coughs> where the Holy Spirit comes on a person. A guy by the name of Nestorius started saying that <coughs> We, can't, we shouldn't call Mary the mother of God. He wasn't denying Jesus' divinity, but he was trying to make a distinction by, by saying, there's some things we can say about Jesus the man that are not correct to say about Jesus the God. Mary is not the mother of God. He's, she's the mother of Christ, the man. But in his doing, he became sloppy with his language and ended up saying that there was two persons in Jesus. A divine person and a human person. Because you gotta remember, to their minds, God is completely impassable. So, in order to retain full humanity, the persons have to be separate. 
you know, I could spend a lot of time. It's, it's a very fascinating story with a lot of intrigue what happened at Chalcedon. Uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople in 381 was deemed to be the head position. The school in Antioch interpreted the Bible literally. The school, this is the area of people who are thinking, it's called the Antiochian school, where you believe that interpreting the Bible literally. And for you, the most important thing was that Jesus be fully human, even if that meant him being two persons. For Alexandria, the most important thing was that Jesus was God, even if that meant his humanity kind of got swallowed up in his divinity. So to make a long story short, they fought over that. Nestorius was condemned for teaching that Jesus was two persons at another council. Another person named Dioscorsus, who was one of the most despicable people, he became uh, the bishop at Alexandria. He wanted an extreme Alexandrian position, where Jesus was completely God. His humanity was just swallowed up by that. Anyway, Chalcedon, and what he did was he actually brought in a bunch of monks. He called his own council, brought in a bunch of monks, and beat up the people who disagreed with him and had official church doctrine be that Jesus was one person, one nature. He was God, but man, and it kind of became a hybrid of one nature. A lot of people who, rear this, who listen to this think, this is just squabbling over our hairs. And, and in some ways it is, but in some ways, to them, it was very important how you interpret it for your salvation. Uh, an amazing book you guys got to get, I have it recommended, is The Story of Christian Theology. And it's by Roger Olson. And he gets into, he has way more time than I have this morning to show why each party cared about their own view. Thankfully, the emperor at the time, who didn't want to call another council, he fell and broke his neck. The next emperor said this was ridiculous. They called it the Robber Synod. Leo who was at this time the first true pope, he said, look, he wrote a tome attacking this view. Anyways, you can look at your notes in Chalcedon. It says what they decided was that Jesus is fully God, fully human, 100% man, 100% God, but one person. It's not really an explanation of what happens at the incarnation, but it's boundaries when we when meditate on what happens. And it's... it's an absolute mystery how Jesus can be fully God and fully human. So remember the Trinity is one what and three who's. So according to Chalcedon, the council in 451, the, Jesus is one who but two what's. After this Chalcedon, a bunch of Christians in the East were fractured. Some became monophysites where they thought it's so important that Jesus be God and the only way for him to be truly God is for him to only be one nature and they <coughs> became the Coptic Christians. Coptic Christians are monophysite. They also went in down into Syria and they're also known as Jacobite Christians, the monophysites. Other people said, no, it's so important that Jesus be fully human. <coughs> By the way, there are charts to break down the, the, the main characters in here and, and what was at stake here. It's more important that Jesus be fully human and the only way Jesus can be fully human is if he has, if he's basically two people or two persons. Later they debated, does Jesus have one will or two wills? I wish I could get into more of the theological intricacy of that, but 
Nestorian, other people became Nestorian Christians. A, a side note, Nestorius most likely was Orthodox. He was just sloppy with his terminology because later when he read the Chalcedonian Creed, he said, that's exactly what I was trying to say all along. But because of that, the heresy of two persons is Nestor, uh, Nestorianism. Sorry, that was, that was dry. But, okay. We're going to look now at the differences between the East and the West. You know, now Christianity is basically divided three ways. Anybody want to know the three main branches of Christianity? There's, there's Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestants are fractured a thousand different ways. But, in 1054, there was a great schism. The Pope excommunicated, well, the Pope's representative excommunicated Constantinople, and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated the Pope. The representative shook from Rome, shook the dust off his feet, and East and West were separated. They call themselves Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholic, even though they might as well call themselves Roman, Roman, Roman Orthodox and Eastern Catholic because they both believe they're Orthodox and they both believe they're Catholic in the universal sense. But that schism that happened in 1054 was really only a, a tiny splintering that had been happening. I'm gonna explain the differences that were developing in the East. In the East, their empire, the strong central government of the emperor continued all the way to 1453. The Roman emperors lived on till 1453 when they fell to the Turks. These emperors all called themselves Christian and they deemed the right to decide church doctrine, to ratify councils. All the leaders of that time found themselves persecuted and under the emperor. In the West, the Roman emperor fell, and the only stable institution was the church. So there's a power vacuum. Who's going to be, take control? And there, the pope ended up taking control, all the way into 800 when the pope ended up crowning the Western emperor. And in the West, you're going to see there is power struggle constantly between the pope, who considers himself the top spiritual leader, and the king, who the pope felt was under him at different times. Pope Leo was the first pope in the modern sense. There is a chart, you can turn to it now, uh, different reasons for how the Bishop of Rome came to be this top position. Uh, I'm not sure which page is in. What is it? 17. Uh, the first one is Pete, uh, Jesus' claim, and this is something Roman Catholics always go back to, and this is something the popes went back to. When Jesus said, you are, P you are Peter, the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. People felt that that referred to the Bishop of Rome, and that every succeeding Bishop of Rome had the 
keys of Peter, the keys to the kingdom. Rome was always awarded prestige because of its size, its location. So in matters of doctrine, the, the, the bishop of Rome was always expected, uh, respected. So the, the, by the 400s, when Rome fell, Pope Leo, very interesting character. He's the one who wrote the tome defending the nature of Christ for Chalcedon. But when Attila the Hun was marching in on Rome, he went out of the city and met Attila the Hun on the road and negotiated a deal with him so that Attila would go back. When the Vandals, who were down here, when they started to come to Rome into 455, he again negotiated, said, please don't burn the city. And because of that, the Vandals only looted the place for two weeks. And people, where we get the name Vandals? They took that. <coughs> Back to the differences between East and West. In the West, they started to think about salvation in terms of legal terms. That we owed a debt to God, and at the cross, Jesus canceled the debt. In the East, they see it more as a mystical union with God. There was the icon controversy. As you may know, the Eastern Orthodox use icons. And what they do, some Protestants think they just idolatry. They're just they're idols to them, and for some people, they probably are. In the mid-700s, there was a controversy over these icons. The emperor didn't want, he wanted the icons ab abolished. If you don't know, an icon is just a representation of a saint or Jesus. John of Damascus argued that icons are kind of the Bible for the illiterate. He also said that there's something that we can look at, but we're directing our minds beyond it to the spiritual reality that the picture represents. But in order to understand icons, you need to understand that in the Eastern Orthodox, it's not so much about systematic theology. It's almost an anti-rational anti communion with the divine. And so in that sense, looking at an icon and almost shutting your mind off allows you to fully experience the divine. The Eastern Orthodox have not really had systematic theologians. In the West, we, there's a ton of them, because just in the different ways that they can saw, uh, conceive salvation terms. So one final glimpse into the Byzantine Empire. Justinian, he was, I think, mid-500s. He restored Rome to a lot of its former glory. He ended up conquering quite a bit, but he left the resources of the Byzantine Empire completely dry. He rebuilt a lot of the churches. I find it so fascinating, the story of his wife. His wife was Theodora. She, he named her co-emperor with him. She was apparently everything he wasn't. He was kind of shy, lost his head. He felt socially inept. She was strong, confident, witty. She was his chief advisor. She was the one who had, who had challenged him to take action. What's interesting, though, is her background. She was the daughter of actresses, of, of an actress, actors. And at that time, actresses were basically looked as prostitutes. They were the, kind of the, the scum of the earth. When she became a Christian, she laid aside her profession and took up wool. When Justinian met her, he, was, he fell in love with her right away. And he changed the laws so that uh, actresses could marry into high society. He all, she, though, was a monophysite. So during his reign, Justinian tried to uh, 
reconcile the factions between the Nestorians and the Monophysites, which means one nature. So, a couple things. Justinian was trying to rebuild Hagia Sophia, which is a famous church in Constantinople. I think Constantine started building it. Constantine's desire was to get the 12 apostles and have him buried there so he could be known as the 13th apostle. So, Justinian also compiled the very complex Roman laws into the Justinian Code. That Justinian Code was very Christian uh, in the sense of it, making, it e making the laws better for Christians. It was kind of hard on the Jews, but it reduced capital crimes. It was a real step forward because there was now Christian principles that it was based on. Justinian Code also became canon law, which is what the Pope studied because uh, to be a Pope you had to study these laws that were saying how, just how much influence the church could have on the rest of society. So that's pretty much it for now for the, the Eastern Empire. They really didn't have much power over the West. Let's just take a bit of a mental break because that's a lot of information to process. Any questions? I feel bad when I have to do such a surface review like that because these are such fascinating times, but you don't get to really appreciate it when it's just at this skimming overview level. But I want you to have, kind of get an idea of what was happening. Rome really went through it in the 500s. Justinian conquered Rome, but he didn't have the resources to keep it. So the Vandals came back, sacked it. Then the Lombards came and sacked it again. There was a famine that they lost a lot of food. There was floods so that the food reserves that they did have. There was a, a plague that wiped out a lot of the population. People were seeing dragons they were hallucinating. People were seeing dragons rise from the ocean. The Pope died during this time. Rome was just in absolute chaos. There was a man by the name of Gregory who at one point in his life, around the age of 30, had been the mayor of Rome. So he had an administrative background. But he didn't want this civil life. He wanted a life of contemplation. So he joined a monastery, a Benedict monastery, as far as I know. When the Pope died, his name was Pope Pelagius, Rome was without a leader. There was no spiritual head and there was no government head. Rome was just in chaos. Everywhere people were mourning in torment. They asked Gregory to come be the Pope and he said he didn't want any part of it. But they elected him. He's now known as Gregory the Great. He did a lot to elevate the office of the Pope. Not for self-advancement, but because he honestly interpreted the scriptures to me. He thought he was highlighting God's institution, honoring God's institution. He himself wanted to be called the servant of servants. He rejected people who were calling themselves pompous titles. But he took his job as the Pope very seriously because as the head of Rome he was not only the head of the spiritual affairs of the church by the way he learned to manage the monasteries, manage the vast land holdings so that they were starting to produce 
uh, again. But he also did a lot of the civil duties, like he paid the soldiers' salaries, and he appointed the generals. Gregory was a very devout man. His ascetic lifestyle, ascetic means very, uh, just denying the flesh, beating up the body through fasting, through suffering. And he had weak health throughout this, but he's such an amazing figure because on the one hand, he did so much good. He saved Rome, he saved this part of Italy by his actions. He was a man who loved God, loved the scriptures, but he left a legacy. He lent papal authority to some ideas that are terrible. For example, Gregory the Great loved Augustine. But where Augustine speculated, Gregory made it official church doctrine. He also took a lot of the superstitions that were creeping in among the people because this was now a mixture of people who, who were barbarians who didn't know the faith. And he started lending um, weight to them. Here's some ideas. The first one was purgatory. Augustine had speculated that there may be a place where we are refined from the sins committed after baptism. Throughout the medieval period, there was this mindset that when you were baptized, all of your eternal sins were wiped away by the blood of Christ. It was a free gift. There was nothing you could do to earn that. It was wiped away. However, they also believed that after baptism, you now had to clean up your mistakes, clean up your own mess. You didn't lose your salvation. These were no longer eternal sins you would suffer for. These were temporary sins. You could atone for these temporary sins. They believed that every sin after baptism needed a satisfaction. So you would confess to the priest your sin, and he would prescribe a penance, which was either amount of money you gave to the poor, certain period of fasting. Uh, soon pilgrimages began to have merit spiritually, where you could start erasing some of your sins. But they also taught that if you didn't do enough to balance out your temporary sins in this life, you went to purgatory. During this time, Gregory had a vision of a man who died after committing a theft. And Gregory had a vision of this man struggling in purgatory. He was not allowed to participate in communion with the saints or with Christ. He was in anguish. And he started feeling so bad for this. He had this idea. He said, he asked his uh, servant under, under him, he said, let's do mass for 30 days where prayers are offered up for this dead person. So for 30 days, they prayed for this man. I think his name was uh, Justice. At the end of 30 days, Justice appeared to his brother who was still alive, and he said, I have now been readmitted to communion. Thank the people who have been praying for me. They were so overwhelmed by this that they, it became official church doctrine that we could pray for the dead based on, on this story. So we've got Gregory the Great authorizing purgatory, which shaped medieval influence. 
We have them authorizing praying for the dead. Uh, we have the idea of, of sacraments and penance. Sacraments became known something we received to live the Christian life. It was how we received grace. When you were excommunicated, it was a very serious deal. What would happen was a na your, your name would be written down, scratched off, someone would snuff out a candle, and, the, and the, a bell would ring for you. Basically, they were saying you were spiritually dead until you repented and the church let you back in. It became powerful. By the time, I'm probably jumping ahead of myself, because at this point, Europe is still mainly barbarian. But by the 10, 11, 1200s, Europe was completely Christian. And you didn't really know the Bible, but you saw all these horrible images of hell. And it became a very powerful tool that the religious leaders used to control you. It would be threatening hell, threatening purgatory, and they could control you that way. So they believed that the sea sacraments were absolutely vital to be receiving life. And so when you were excommunicated, as far as you knew, you were under God's wrath. And there was nothing you could do about it until you met the demands of the priest. So that's Gregory the Great <laughs> in a nutshell. Everything I've read about him, about the man, raves about him personally. His devotion. He wrote a handbook for pastors that was used all the way through the medieval times with so much insight into how to care for the flock. I mean, one of his mottos was terrific. It was, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> the way he did that was the people who were so afflicted, worried about God's grace, he preached a, mess, a message of God's grace and forgiveness. To the people who were too complacent in their sins, he preached the need for them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Something else that happened during the, Gregory, the Great's time is the cult of relics. The idea came into being that saints who were martyred, saints who suffered, earned spiritual merit, spiritual credit that could be given to people to help erase your sins. So superstitious. But people believe that if you uh, made a pilgrimage to a shrine that housed a relic, either a bone, a tooth, a piece of garment, uh, there was spiritual merit to that. At some point in medieval history, you could actually get a pin saying, I had been to so-and-so's tomb as proof of your forgiveness. Uh, during this, they made it a law that relics had to be in the church because of their spiritual power. When a holy man died, people were on him like a vulture to try to rip off parts of his beard, parts of his cloak, because they thought it had spiritual value. It's so interesting, you know, you read about these uh, religions in Asia, and they have ancestor worship. And what Christians adopted of this praying to the saints and receiving guidance from the saints, I think there's just something in human nature that wants to keep missing out on, on who God really is and the power he wants to offer us. It's so sad, as this Christianity was spreading, to see how these people lived 
in bondage. But you know, at the same time, so many of us Protestants have our own systems of penance, of beating ourselves up. We all wonder, what do we do when we sin? Is God really just going to forgive me? A lot of us, I know I've been through this, I have to prove to myself that I've fully repented before I allow God's grace. So let's not just mock these simple people, but let's also try to live in these gospel principles. Something else about, as these nations were converted, they were often mass conversions. <coughs> there wasn't time to educate each one. For example, when Protestant missionaries went into a country, it was often a long, laborious process of educating one individual and hoping that he would change. The problem with that is once this person comes out of his community, there's terrible peer pressure to go back into it. The way a lot of the missionary work happened in the medieval times was the king would be converted and he would force his subjects to baptize. So whole, when the king became a Christian, the whole country became a Christian. It's great that the culture is changing, but there's no way you can fully educate that many people about what Christianity is. So this is why you have people thinking that James is a warlord, thinking Peter is a warlord because he was the one who cut off Malchus's ear, thinking of Jesus as, as your new warlord who is more powerful than, than your God. The majority of portrayals of Christ are him as, as a victor. It's, you don't... Images of Christ, they're usually him on a, on a cross, but in a, in a victorious pose. They didn't really th start meditating on his sufferings until uh, after the 10 hundreds. Now Christ is, is completely the victor, but not in that earthly ruler sense. It's through serving and through the weakness of, of people. So we're going to look now at the conversion of the barbarians. By the way, part of the syncretism was prayers for the saints. For one example, Saint Apollonius was a woman. She had her jaw broken in persecution, and so she was the patron saint of toothaches. There was patron saints for just about every aspect, one for hens, one for illnesses, and these are the saints you prayed to. Saint George in English was the England was the, the patron saint. Uh, James in in uh, Spain, Santiago. That's what that means. Saint James uh, against the, he became the patron saint of defeating Muslims. The cry against the Muslim was Santiago, Saint James, and that's why we have names like that in uh, South America. Okay. You see here it says Frankish Kingdom. In around 450, right around the time of Leo, the Franks were coexisting with the Burgundies. The Burgundies were Nicene Christians, the Franks were pagans. The king of the Franks married a queen, well she became queen, of the Burgundies. 
She was a Christian, he was not. When they had a son, she urged him. His name was Clovis. Her name was Clotilda. I'm not making this up. Clotilda urged Clovis, when their son, to please baptize our son into the Christian faith. He reluctantly allowed their son to be baptized. Their son died in the baptismal robes. Clovis blamed the baptism. Their second son, she again wanted him baptized, and he became sick to the point of death after the baptism, but he survived. Clovis was out in battle, and it had something similar happen to Constantine. He was losing the battle, he was outnumbered, and he cried out to his wife's God saying, if you're real, save me, and if you help me out of this battle, I'll convert. I'll be baptized a Christian. And he did. And he told his wife about it. She took him to a bishop, and the bishop said, okay, it's time for you to burn what you worship and start worshiping what you've been burning, was the way he put it. And he had 3,000 of his troops baptized. In England, by the way, he was of the Merovingian line. The Franks became the French. Now, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown's theory was that the Merovingian kings were descendants of the union between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and that the Merovingian kings continued that, that line. Um, don't believe it. <laughs> now Gregory the Great, one of his things that led to the, the differences between East and West is that Gregory had a strong missionary impulse. He wanted to send missionaries out. And he sent a missionary to England. At the time, and I love these names, there was King um, I love the name, I just can't remember it. I think his name, his, his wife's name, oh, it is Ethelbert. <laughs> the King of England's name was Ethelbert, and his wife's name was Bertha. <laughs> you can look it up, people. Gregory the Great, when he, before he had been Pope, he saw some blonde slaves and he was amazed to see these good-looking blondes that wasn't something he had seen and he said where are these boys from and he said they're angles he said no they're angels angles were the native people in angleland where we get the name england um, the saxons were one of these germanic tribes they took over and brutalized England. And the Christians there, who were there before the Saxons, were so bitter to the way they were treated, they wanted nothing to do with converting their conquerors. Most of the time, when the barbaric tribes conquered an area, Christianity was so strong that they, the barbarians ended up converting to Christianity. So Gregory the Great, in 590, he sent Augustine of Canterbury, <laughs> He wasn't Augustine of Canterbury when he went there, but that's how he's, he's known, because he ended up becoming, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, anyway, Augustine went to uh, King Ethelbert. Bertha, again, was a Christian, and he wanted, she wanted her husband to meet with Augustine. 
He, <laughs> there was a rumor going around, though, that Augustine had the power to grow tails <laughs> on the backsides of anybody who disagreed with him. <laughs> so Ethelbert said, I'll meet with you, but only outside, because he thought his, his, power, his spiritual power would be lessened outside. Ethelbert and Augustine went into negotiations, and I don't know if Augustine mentioned tales, but he, Ethelbert was so convinced by Augustine's message that he gave him the land of Canterbury, and he became the first archbishop of Canterbury. What's interesting, though, is Gregory, I mean, Augustine brought Roman Christianity, which, which isn't a bad thing at this point because it's the only Christianity. It's the Orthodox one compared to the other options. But he brought Roman Christianity to England. Now, in Ireland, an offspring, spiritual offspring of Patrick, his name was Columba. Around the same time, well, maybe a little before, Columba, believe it or not, was a hot-headed Irishman. I didn't even know they made such a thing. <laughs> but anyway, he got, he got into an argument. His, his temper resulted in a battle that killed 3,000 men. He felt so bad about what he had caused, he said, I'm going to go to Scotland and I'm going to claim 3,000 souls for Christ to reclaim that. So he and 12 men got into a little skin-covered vessel and sailed across Ireland to Scotland. He started a monastery at Iona. Started a group of Celtic Christians that were marked by strong missionary impulse. They didn't focus on the bishop so much because they were so influenced by clans. So their idea of, Christ of Christian community was the monasteries. So their spiritual head wasn't their bishop, it was the abbot, because it was kind of like they became a new family clan in the monastery. Um, but what this um, Scottish or Columban Christianity celebrated Easter on the 14th of Nisan. Rome celebrated Easter on that Sunday. Now, Augustine's Christianity was spreading its way north, and Columba's Christianity was spreading its way south until the 600s, the mid to late 600s, where the king of England at this time was, I think it's pronounced Oswy. It's O-S-W-Y. So we'll call him Oswy. He was from the north. So he celebrated Easter on the 14th. His wife was from the south. She celebrated Easter on the Sunday. So this was creating family problems because Christians fasted up till Easter and then feasted on Easter. So in this family, one person was feasting for Easter and the other person was fasting. It really cuts into your Easter celebrations. So the king who was from the north and the Columban Christianity, he said, we, could, we need to get this resolved. So he called a synod at Whitby where he said, he, talked, he, he gathered some northern bishops and some southern bishops. He said, we need to get this sorted out. The northern bishops said, look, this is the one we've received from ancient times. This is the one we think you should go with. The other difference was the way the monks shaved their head. It was in a different pattern. Real <laughs> important issues. But then there was the, the 
Southern Christians turned to talk, and they said, well, we can trump you. The Bishop of Rome, who is Peter's successor, says that we should be, we should be worshiping, celebrating Easter on the Sunday. Also in our favor is that this bishop, Peter, owns the keys to the kingdom. So we think you should do it his way. And King Oswey said, asked people, is this true that Peter owns the keys to the kingdom? And they, the guys from the, yeah, it is. He said, well, if that's the case, I don't want to tick off St. Peter. Because <laughs> if I get to heaven and he's got the keys, I want him to be on my good side so he opens the door for me. So from that time, he, the England adopted the Roman version and it was another victory for the Pope as he continued to claim, claim ground. Okay, I am... Um, Sorry about this. I just need to take a look to see how much, I'm trying to pace myself, how much material I'm trying to look in there. Great. I think we're doing fairly well. I have a little extra time. So. Around the middle of the 500s, a major firestorm was brewing in the Arab countries. A guy by the name of Muhammad, you might have heard him, <laughs> or heard of him, was born. He was orphaned at a young age. He was raised by his uncle and his grandfather. When he was 15, he started working for a very wealthy widow who's about I'm not well well he was she was 15 years older than him anyway when she was 20 when he was 25 and she was 40 he married her so for the first time in his life he had a lot of leisure time and financial stability this allowed him to pursue the religious life in this area there was a strong jewish influence and a strong christian influence but neither one was probably that true to its original nature. He was born in Mecca. Now, he supposedly started receiving visions from Gabriel, who was giving him this new message of extreme monotheism, of one God. And he started giving him some moral code to live by. He started dictating the Quran. Apparently, he was a, an illiterate uh, person. So he was dictating the Quran. But the people in Mecca didn't want anything to do with this new religion because Mecca was a tourist industry. They had, get this, a black stone, which was actually a meteorite. But the legend was that this stone was given by an angel to Abraham and Ishmael. And it had spiritual power. And people would make, a, uh, would make a pilgrimage to stand before this awesome black stone. So when he started preaching this message of destroying idols, he was persecuted and he fled the country. The year that he fled, I think it's 622, is the first year in the Muslim world. That's when Muslims start the birth of their 
their nation. That's their, when their calendar year starts. He came back and conquered Mecca. The five pillars or the five points of belief for a Muslim are the first one is the simple declaration that you're supposed to say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You're supposed to give alms to the poor. You're supposed to pray five times a day. You're supposed to, if you can, make a yearly, I mean, once in a lifetime pilgrimage to Mecca. And the, it's actually the second one, but the final one is, is the giving alms to the poor. Anyway, for whatever reason, Muhammad's uh, religion took off. After his death, which was 632, from 632 to 732, there was a huge period of Muslim expansion. Sai, can you go to the Muslim expansion, Matt? Yes. So you can see this was the area that was conquered under Muhammad. Uh, this area. Then this area was covered, was conquered by the first four caliphs. Caliph means successor. Then finally this area. You can see they came, they took Spain. And so you look at how much of Europe, I mean, I mean, this is Europe, I know, but look how much of how the world is being dominated by the Muslims. It's a huge force. Uh, you remember the great heritage this area <coughs> had, North Africa, men like Tertullian and Augustine. Christianity pretty much disappeared in that area because they were so splintered by all the different versions. Some areas where there were monophysites, say in Egypt, they thought it was a relief to have the Muslims come into the country because they were getting persecuted by the Orthodox Church. Now, in 732, there was the Battle of Tours, and that stopped the Muslim expansion. It's a key battle in history because if the Muslims had made it, made it over the Alps, they could have just continued to wipe out Europe. Remember the Merovingian kings. Clovis had power, but after the while, they became known as the do-nothing kings. Yes, there was kind of a, a symbol of power on the throne, but the real powerful person in the country was known as the mayor of the palace, and he was kind of the prime minister. Charles Martel, Martel means hammer, Charles the hammer, was a mayor of the palace for the Franks. And he stopped the Muslims in the Battle of Tours. And I think that's where we're going to wrap up this session. So right now we're at 732. So we've covered a lot of time. <laughs> time for review.